Today, I'm going on a style journey with serial entrepreneur who founded a string of game-changing companies in the worlds of beauty and wellness. She's recognized globally as an industry leader, a business visionary, a beauty expert, and an inspiration for female entrepreneurs everywhere, the truly brilliant Marcia Kilgore. In 1997, Time magazine chose a 29-year-old Kilgore as their cover star, pegging her as one of the new generation of entrepreneurs whose hard work, ingenuity and fearlessness trumped the networking business school big shots. In May 2011, when Oprah Winfrey's final show aired, Oprah referred to her former facialist, Kilgore, as one of the most inspiring people she'd ever met. In 2022, the Sunday Times said her new digitally native business had forever changed the way we shop for cosmetics. In between, Kilgore has sold one business to LVMH, another to Alliance Boots Walgreens, and started three others, recognised by Vogue UK as one of the most powerful women of 2023 in their power list. Hello and welcome, <laughs> Marcia. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. So good to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you here. Usually we meet in Switzerland. Yes. Um, but we go back a and, long under duress. way. Under <laughs> duress, climbing mountains together. And we talk so much. So much. To forget that we are climbing, um, but we feel so good at the top. feel great at the top. Um, now, I know we were trying to work it out this weekend um, when we first met, and I think it was back in the 90s during your Bliss Spa heydays um, in London. And I have to admit that I followed your career in awe as you built and sold Bliss, followed by building and selling the upbeat, tongue-in-cheek Soap and Glory, and not content with those two juggernaut successes, you founded the Biomechanics Meets Fashion Footwear brand FitFlop. You've only sold 65 million pairs of sandal sneakers and boots worldwide to date and probably another million as we speak. And if that wasn't enough, in 2016 you created my slight obsession, the fabulous Buyers Club skincare and makeup brand Beauty Pie. Bringing luxury beauty to a wider audience and knowing you, there'll be many more chapters. But as the complete beauty pie junkie that I am, I would love you to explain to my style hungry audience, because it's such a disruptor in the beauty industry, how how the whole thing works, what inspired you. Take us on that journey. Oh, to create beauty pie, I mean, it was such an obvious one. Usually when I create a business, I am trying to create something that I myself would like to buy or shop from or have. Um, beauty pie was easy because I had sold my beauty business, which was Soap and Glory. And I realized when I was in an airport in Hong Kong going to um, work on a footwear collection in Dongguan that I hadn't bought my own beauty products in probably 20 years. And I actually I didn't really understand how much they cost. Because when you're in charge of a beauty brand and when you've got one, you have labs from all over the world sending you free samples, sending you submissions so that you might buy their submissions, rebrand them and put them on the shelf as your own. Um, I was constantly you know, receiving boxes and boxes of, I mean, it was always like Christmas, right? Boxes of samples from labs. And it was so great. It was like, oh my God, I love that lab. And a box would show up and you'd open it up and there would be all of, all of these products to try. So I hadn't actually shopped for beauty products in 20 years. So maybe I'd have a few gifts from different people, but it never occurred to me how expensive things had gotten 
on the other side. So like George Bush, I believe there was a time when he was president and he went into a grocery store. He had no idea how much milk cost because it had been so long since he had to go buy his own milk. It was kind of the same. Obviously, I'm a Democrat, but I had no idea how much good moisturizer cost. So I'm in the airport in Hong Kong about to go to Dongguan where they don't heat the factories in the winter until it gets really, really cold. And I had forgotten to bring facial moisturizer, and I was going to be out there for a couple of weeks. And I thought, you know what, let me just go to duty-free. <laughs> I haven't been in a duty-free to buy anything in years. And I headed over to uh, one of the you know, well-known, high-quality Asian brands where there were a lot of choices of moisturizers. And I had been given one of those moisturizers by a friend who worked for one of those brands many years before, so I knew it was a really nice texture, et cetera, et cetera. And it went to buy it, and I grabbed it from the shelf, and it was 150 pounds or dollars or whatever, you know, whatever they're selling. Enough, it not. too much. I just thought, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, who is paying $150? And then I realized, oh, my God, everybody's paying this much for the moisturizer. And I looked at it, looked at the ingredients, how it was packaged, et cetera, et cetera, and I thought, well, this costs $5 to make, oh. maybe, you know, and I thought, I can't. I can't do it. I can't pay $150 for something that costs $5 to make. And I literally went to a factory for two weeks in the cold at probably the age of, you know, 40-something and didn't have moisturizer because it just seemed so ridiculous to pay that kind of markup. And I had a similar situation uh, probably a couple of months later where I went to Italy and one of the labs that makes all the good makeup for all the good brands. And they also make some of the cheaper makeup for some of the cheaper brands, but they make all the luxury makeup for all the luxury cosmetic brands. They had invited me to their open house, probably knowing that at some point I would start another brand and start buying things from them again. And they gave me a bunch of samples. So I had my bag full of samples and I'm in the um, train station in Milan. And there happens to be a Sephora there. And I've got all these samples that they've been giving me over the last couple of days of the show and tell. Because it's kind of like a buffet. You go in. They show you all their new technology. They say, we have this lipstick, that lipstick, that, this, that's that. And you kind of choose, right, as a Next brand. Next time, I want to come I carry your bag. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow. I'm- that's exactly it. I remember I had the bag over my shoulder. And I knew what was in there because I had sort of chosen. I was like, that's interesting. This is interesting. You try all the different samples and the textures and you you know you choose which ones feel really luxurious you know what the they'll tell you what the ingredient lists are and so you that's sort of a starting point and then you can make some tweaks you mix the colors but the formulations were all in my bag and I walked into a Sephora which is in the Milan train station and I saw so many items that probably were on preview or on you know limited you know they get the first shot at it for certain brands that had big distribution this lab will sell them that product first for six months, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, oh, my God. I looked at the prices in Sephora, and I knew what was in my bag and how much that would cost if we were to buy it as a you know, cosmetics company. And the difference, again, was like 12, 15 times Ooh. from X factory to sitting on a shelf. And I thought, well, A, I've got $5,000 worth of street value cosmetics in this bag over my shoulder. And second, while I was getting on the train, I thought, oh, my God, all my friends would love to come here and do this with me. <laughs> that was it. And then all the hair on my body went up, you know, when your hair stands on it. And yep. I thought, oh, that's it. How do we get everyone to have this really fun experience of kind of being able to shop for the really good stuff direct from the lab or direct from a warehouse where you don't have to go 
I really want that, but it's, you know, 60 pounds. You know, you can go, you know, I love that. Let me just get five. I, <laughs> and so I had to then figure out, well, how, how do you do it? Which is, that was a, a much longer kind of consideration and building the idea of it and how much stock do you need and how does a membership work and all that. But there was, there was some precedent. There were brands, you know, like Netflix. There were brands like Everlane at the time that had just started out where people were doing this thing where they were cutting out middlemen um, and they were bringing products for much less direct to customers. So I, I had a few guidelines to follow, um, but I didn't tell the labs what I was doing until the day before we had a feature in Vogue. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> were you scared at any point? Because these, these big beauty companies are enormous. They have so much muscle. They have a lot of muscle, and that's exactly why I didn't tell the labs. Because I thought, my God, if they know what I'm doing, I'm about to like rip the, you know, the wool off of everybody's eyes and expose the markups in the cosmetics industry for what they are. They might not manufacture for us anymore. So I had to buy the inventory and get it into the warehouses and have enough inventory for 18 months, right? Forecasting on how many members we thought would join so that if those labs decided not to sell us anything, we'd have the opportunity to go somewhere else and remanufacture with someone else. So it was a little bit of a risk because <laughs> you don't know, like no one might join, right? Or everyone might join. The labs might not care at all, or they might go, are you kidding me? And close the door on you. And we didn't know. But I did think, first I thought, I'm going to need a bulletproof vest. <laughs> Speaking of our weighted vests, my weighted vest would have come in handy um, because I thought everyone's going to kill me, right? The first thought was, oh, my God, if I do this and I show people how much cosmetics really cost to make and skincare and everything else, everyone is going to hate. Or all of it was actually the industry is going to hate me, right? And then I thought, but millions of women will love me. They, they <laughs> so do. Now, for those couple of women that might be listening to this who aren't already beauty price <laughs> subscribers can you can you just give them the elevator pitch as oh. to what beauty pie is because oh, sure. i really believe that we all need to know and we About all need beauty to be pie. members because i am just obsessed with it <laughs> um i would love to pitch everyone my elevator pitch um beauty pie is a buyer's club for people who love skincare, makeup, hair care, beautiful candles, um, we have supplements. Um, we have a lot of different categories now. We started with makeup, and then we expanded into skincare, of course, because that's really my area. And then we expanded into supplements and body care and hair care, and perfumes and candles and everything. And what we do is we buy in large quantities from the world's leading third-party labs, so those that manufacture for other high-end brands, whether that's a Tom Ford or, a, I mean, what is high-end anyway? You know, it's luxury quality brands. Um, and so we buy from the same manufacturers that they buy from. And we buy the best quality product uh, with the most cutting-edge science. In skincare, we actually formulate with those labs, but we formulate better than they do. So we tell them what to put into the um, products. And then we bring the products to our warehouse. And instead of the product costing our members 12 times or 15 times or 20 times what it would normally cost, which is what the average cosmetic industry markup is, it'll usually be between two and three times what it costs to make. So we're able to disintermediate the normal system 
um, and bring products to customers for a quarter, a third, a fifth of what they would normally pay for the same quality. Thank you. I I have to admit um, <laughs> that you do How this wonderful candles? thing when you <laughs> place your order, and and it sort of it comes up with the total, and then it goes. Congratulations, Amanda. Not only are you beautiful, you're clever too. You have so far saved. And for the sake of this podcast, I am not going to oh, say how many thousands of pounds I've saved. I have saved 55,000 pounds. Well, that's more than me. <laughs> but I give a lot of product, of course, to friends also, right? So you end up buying candles and bring them for dinner parties and all that kind of stuff. So it's also very handy just to fill a cupboard. It, um, yeah. Amazing. Now... We are not here to talk about your brilliant entrepreneurship, although I, I could do that all day. I want to know what makes you tick sartorially. Mm. Um, so we're going on a style journey. So how did you decide what to wear today? Oh, well, I dress from a suitcase, um, which, <laughs> which is always probably difficult. generally do. Yes, you? I dress a lot from a suitcase. When I need to look styled, <laughs> it is normally in a suitcase scenario because if I am in Switzerland, which is where I live, I can just put on, although I'll, I will, you know, put on a great cashmere jumper, often one of yours. Thank you. Um, and, <laughs> and a pair of, you know, trousers, normally something kind of Italian and floppy. And then a pair of flip-flop sandals. And I, I'm at my desk on Zooms, so I don't necessarily have to be styled up. Any other time, if I'm doing a podcast or an appearance, I am dressing out of a suitcase. So it will be navy, camel, black and white, um, just, you know, automatically. And it's usually a great jumper, a great pair of trousers, a great jacket. And that is easy. If I have to go to an event in the evening, it'll usually be some old comme de garçon, smock type thing or an issy Mackey type thing because they cram into a suitcase and do not require too much ironing you are so practical <laughs> i'm incredibly practical and you grew up in a small canadian outback town is that fair <laughs> enough saskatchewan saskatchewan yes i mean uh, but yeah a farm farming town i mean i grew up in i was born in saskatchewan in a little town called outlook um, before Outlook was, you know, Microsoft. And it was a beautiful little town on the top of a river that had sort of a deep, you know, deep valley. Um, and it was gorgeous, but there's nothing, right? It was like prairies and grain silos and barns and nothing. And cold? Oh, my God. So were you permanently in sort of technical clothing? <laughs> just <to> Permanently <laughs> frozen. <laughs> there was no technical clothing. You know, it was. You're right, actually. Yeah, there wasn't. I mean, technical clothing is a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. Where they've thought about like the different layers and how it holds air and how the air, you know. So, what were you running around wearing as a, wool, as a kid? You yes. know, I mean, I. It was survival. Yeah. Right. We did not think so much about how we looked. I don't think anybody, even still, when I go back to visit my mother, people are not really dressing for style. They're dressing just. Or survival. I was going to say, did your mother have, you know, was she stylish or was she just functional? My mother was completely functional. So my mother is still, to this day, I will bring her skincare products. She still will have one bottle of Dr. Bronner's soap in her shower. And she often will use that as her shampoo, her shower gel, her soap. I can't get her to use moisturizer. <laughs> and I bring her all these, you know, beautiful things that are, you know, of course, safe. She's very green, clean, always has been, you know, the yoga 
healthy eating, grinds your own flaxseed, all that kind of stuff. But I can't get her to use moisturizer. That's why you have it's such my life beautiful skin. Well, that flaxseed yeah. as a child. <laughs> <laughs> but so, when did you? When were you first exposed to fashion? Then, what was your first sort of? What was your early memory of thinking? Ooh, that feels good. Oh, well, that came a lot for like a lot later when I moved to New York. I'd say my, my first memory of fashion as such was that we were not a well-off family whatsoever. Um, and my parents used to be quite strict about manners and also kids chipping in and doing their fair share of household work. And we would get new school clothes once a year. And we would get them if we remembered to pick our plate up off the table on the evening that our father had put $40 underneath our plate. And that would be our budget for school clothes for a year, right? So, of course, this was a long time ago, so $40 got, got you a little bit, but not. it wasn't like I was rotating, you know, 30 outfits. You were, you were rotating three or four, kind of like your school uniform, and if you grew, everything was going to be too small, a little bit too small until you remembered to pick up your plate on the right night of the week when they had stashed. <laughs> and that was, you know, yearly. So you didn't put your plate in the dishwasher. You were not wearing clothes for another year. Whoa. So, that's, yes. that's a tough lesson to learn, isn't it? Yes, to this day, <laughs> even if I am out at someone else's house oh, for dinner and there I is have seen service, you. I <laughs> pick up your plate. My plate is coming up and I am taking it to the dishwasher or to the sink because I don't, it's just now like it's epigenetic. I wish I could get my sons to do the same thing. Well, they it don't. it should be in your DNA by now. I think so. I think it is. It's like some kind of vibration. But it, it missed them. But you got into bodybuilding yes. as a teenager. Dude, I was so bored. There was like nothing else to do, right? You're in the middle of Saskatchewan. So what was the gym look? What were uh, you wearing back in the 80s? Thank you. Yes, it was the 80, early 80s. Oh my God, was it the G-string leotard? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God they didn't have those in Saskatchewan. <laughs> I mean, it was, again, like choices were f sort of few and far between. There were tights. And I remember having T-shirts and having just sort of, you know, typical exercise clothes. But again, not a lot. S like Saskatoon, Saskatchewan was 20 years behind anywhere else, right? They probably just got a Lululemon. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank God you missed the G-string Yes, did unitard. you wear the G-string unitard? I, Tell the truth. I had a moment. Don't even go there. I, I you know. rocked it. You I've rocked got, it. I've got, I've got a photograph. <laughs> I mean, a modeling photograph. I, God. <gasps> yeah, it oh, just fills me with horror. But Jane yeah. Fonda did it so well. I mean, you can see there was that, like, bit with those the 80s colors. They were just so bad. <laughs> and the, and the, what were they called? Leg warmers? Remember the leg, leg warmers? warmers? And, and cycle shorts. Oh my God, that. Yeah, no, not quite. Oh, wait. Not Remember kind. Flashdance? <laughs> yes. Okay, did you go home after you watched Flashdance and just dance around your house? Oh, completely. Met, I so did not look like, was it Jennifer? Beale? Yeah. No. Yeah, I don't think anybody looked like mm. Jennifer Beale in Got this. Got that body was was incredible. Apparently it was a body double. <laughs> that makes me feel Isn't that a lot better. Me too. But you moved to New York at the age of 17. I did. In the 80s. Yeah. Do you remember your favorite looks from back then? Well, you know, at that point, again, I was a personal trainer. So there was a little bit more to buy, but I spent a lot of time in tights, t-shirts, until, and I made $10 an hour, right? But you were a bodybuilder, didn't you? I mean, I had a lot of... Yes. That covers the muscles and all that Just you're trying to... 
Well, I know, but if you walk around in tight clothing in New York City in like the late 80s, early 90s, Mm. you're just going to get mugged or attacked. However, I was so muscular that, you know, I I was a force. (laughs) Did you have a a six pack? Oh, yes. I had a six pack. I had I had biceps, triceps, deltoids. I mean, people would go, are you an Olympic athlete? I would have that. God. So I wasn't particularly I was again quite functional until I could afford clothing I mean you kind of when you don't have the budget you don't look because it's just too painful <laughs> yeah no it's too I painful get that to be left out right but when you can start to afford a little bit of fashion and actually in the bodybuilding phase I was never like I was never like Arnold I was more like I guess dancer sprinter um you know, someone I a little bit longer. got to see pictures. It was actually pretty impressive when I look back. I think, how did I do that? I mean, you have to work out four hours a day, right? And then you have to eat the healthy the diet. Right like stuff. only no carbs. And I mean, I do that now. It still doesn't have the same effect. <laughs> what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong? We're just our bodies evolve. They do evolve. So I'm doing my best. But it was amazing how when you could try on a good piece of clothing. And you have that kind of like really svelte firm, even though my body is really difficult. So I was prepping and thinking about how I think about clothing. And actually clothing for me has always been a bit of a love-hate relationship, right? It's almost like there's a, a fight between myself and clothing because Western clothing is not made for my type of body. I have wide shoulders, flat chest, shorter legs, right? Long torso, I am a Japanese body. So that did that lead you yes, to Japanese yes. fashion? As soon as I'd walk into Yoji Yamamoto, you felt everything home. Everything looked amazing. <laughs> Sadly, it was all $2,000 and I was making 10 bucks an hour. So I had to work my way up, you know? But what <laughs> if there was, was ever an inspiration. Do you remember the first piece of designer clothing that you saved hard for and bought and thought, yes. I feel a million dollars in this? Yes. There was. So I think at the time I was dating this guy who had like a little bit more money than I did and loved Matsuda. Do you remember Matsuda? I mean, what? I don't know whatever happened to it, but one of the very, I guess, early Japanese designers who made it over to New York. And I don't know, I always went down this one strip of Fifth Avenue between 23rd Street and 22nd, and there was a Matsuda store there. It was when it was, it wasn't the Flatiron yet. It was sort of. I remember. Yeah, kind of like Soho, but on Fifth Avenue. And I remember them having a sale, and there was this coat in the window, and it was the most beautiful coat. And it was, I mean, we're talking like 1990, right? It was $1,800, but on sale it was only nine. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought, well, nine, it's only 90 hours of work (laughs) for $900 coat. And I saved up, and I got it. And I was probably, I don't know, 20, right? And still making $10 an hour. But I could not live without that cover. Oh, it was so beautiful. Even over your gym kit, anything. Oh, my God, anything. I mean, T-shirt, that's the thing with a great coat, right? You can put a white T-shirt and whatever, and then you put the coat on, and you're a completely different person. But it's a transformative piece, isn't it? Coats are everything. Yeah. Yeah. If you just don't have time or... you. You know, you just throw it on. So I have a terrible weakness for coats, and I try not to buy any more, but sometimes I do. Do you always buy ladies' clothes? 
women's clothes. Um, just sort of hearing you talk about your shoulders. Yeah. And in this time of very... Yeah, sort of unisex dressing. Unisex dressing. Well, Thank you. these jeans are Tuga. Do you know Tuga? Yeah. Yeah, so they're unisex. Yeah. Um, I don't have that much time. This is the other thing. I don't have a lot of time to go trying on clothes. Yeah. So I will tend to repeat myself because I'll just head to where I know I'm going to find stuff. Yeah. And generally I will head to the women's section, but I would try on men's stuff for sure. Why yeah. not? And then my son would steal it. Oh, that's another story. <laughs> Now, you created the iconic cult beauty destination Bliss Spas in New York. Um, and you had some incredibly famous clients, you know, from Uma Thurman, Madonna, Oprah, and even Calvin Klein, yes. to name a few. Were you ever impressed by their style? You know, I thought about this, and I thought most of the time, by the time I would see the client... They were delivered to me in a robe. Yes, I, I thought about that. <laughs> so, in fact, and often they were coming in at like 7.30 in the morning because we couldn't fit them in during the day. Yeah. And they'd call at the last minute and I'd say, oh, okay, okay. can't get you in. But if you come at 7.30, I'll come at some. And they would be just as schlumpy as the average person. Um, and I can't, I was trying to think about who just looked fabulous all the time. And there rarely was anyone however shalom harlow who was um one of the sort of she you know there was the supermodels really yes yeah, she's she? kind of a super maybe a minus you know there was super a's we won't quote you on that yeah i know <laughs> i mean she was still a super but you she didn't was. hear about her so yes. as much yeah but she it was that like long tall body and she was a dancer and so it, i think it was just the way she held herself yeah. everything just like hung off of her like I mean, it was amazing. about posture, yes. isn't there, that can be so transformative. Again, transformative. Yes. But when I'm you like, were... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm sitting... Oh, I'm pulling my shoulders back. But when you were creating the concept for Bliss, yes. what did you... How did you work out what you were going to put your aestheticians, aestheticians in? in? Yeah, well, it had to be, again, if you think about what they're doing all yeah. day, it had to be quite practical. Yeah. Conan O'Brien once said that our, our uniform, especially in the wet body treatment rooms, made us look like sexy tugboat captains. <laughs> <laughs> can you explain that one to me? Well, you have to have, you know, you've got to be wearing things where you can scrub people with yep. boiling salt and rinse them off. And, it, you know, it stays, you, you know, you don't have anywhere and you don't want people to have to change 18 times a day. So when people were doing wet body treatments, which involved like showering people, hosing them off. There's water splashing all over the place. We had to get them like sort of a water-resistant or waterproof <laughs> dungaree, right? But over top of like a cool T-shirt. Yeah. So at the time, it was like splendid T-shirts or James Purse T-shirts and we would put a big giant Bliss logo on them and then they would have these kind of really cool kind of waterproof. But that's fantastic. So fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, it was super really cool. fabulous. Super cool. And I thought of trying to do something like an Miyake, right? But those fabrics don't necessarily breathe when you're massaging people. No. And so important when you show up to be standing in close proximity to a client that you are fresh. So that was <laughs> fresh and clean. You know, you had to just think like, okay, um, fresh and clean and friendly and kind of Cool and groovy. Because yeah. Bliss, in everything you touch is, is super cool. But I, you know, Bliss was my first experience of Marcia. 
and and I just remember everything about it was cool, right. It was it, it just it had exactly I, it was it had some humor to it, had mega luxury to it, and yeah. Anyhow, so my first experience of bliss was in London, and you you moved here to open the spa. Yes. Did your personal style change when you hit London from the streets of New York? You know what? Quite a lot, actually, because when you live in London, in New York, it's about black and white, right? White tea, or a white shirt, generally, you know, yep. Oxford, and Everyone is wearing like a, a white Oxford shirt and a black jacket. Here, you look like a waiter. <laughs> and I, and but in New York, that is what everyone's wearing, and that's what stylish there's is. Very much a new. A, there's a uniform in New York, absolutely. And whereas London is far more eclectic. It's much more eclectic. So you how did you so much more your style. eclecticism? Well, it was quite difficult for me because I I don't know if it's just the way my brain thinks, but I like simplicity you're quite a uniform person i always think just yeah default right? yeah yeah i have so much going on yes like this i can't look even if i put on earrings sometimes i'm like i can't <laughs> it's too much it's almost like attention deficit disorder earring overload yeah i just can't look at myself if there's too much going on um and it's the same with clothing i try very hard when i moved here to like fit into the mix this color with that color these pattern mixes it was really quite difficult i buy a lot of clothes thinking i'm gonna break out of my style rut which wasn't a rut in new york but it was certainly a rut in london and everything would just hang there so i did kind of venture into a little bit more Janya watanabe who at the time was doing some really cool colored pattern things yep. which is different for a japanese person and of course since i'm a yoji yamamoto uh, Comme de Garçon, Amanda Wakely, or Too Good, or Nilly Lotin type of person, there's not a lot of patterns there, right? Yeah. So bringing in those patterns and, and that color is kind of tough. Thank you for the little Amanda Wakely plug oh there. Oh my God, right? the Amanda Wakely that. stuff. <laughs> that is the stuff. Oh, when... You... Stop it. What? <laughs> You're flashing now. Flashing. Flashing your Wakely cashmere. I'm just showing off because <laughs> I'm Wakely cashmere. Um, when you did your first big sellout and you suddenly found yourself with a chunk of cash mm. in the bank. Yes. We called it the eagle has landed day. The eagle has landed. So yes. when the eagle had landed. <laughs> the first eagle. Did, your, did that impact on your buying habits or your style actually? Well, of course, I was still like very hands on in the spa. So day to day, I'm still wearing the uniform. Um, but I do remember. So. I think the eagle landed on like, I don't know, sometime in April, early April 1990, was it 1999? Must have been 1999. I would say eagle. several eagles landed, by the way, but anyhow, well, it was they the landed. the first chunk of the eagle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was quite funny. We, I, I remember my husband and I, we then got married about, we were like planning to get married anyway. We got married about two weeks later. And for our for the weekend that we got married, we had a board meeting. So we got married, I think, on a Friday. We had a board meeting on the Monday in New York, so we couldn't really go anywhere. We just got married at City Hall. But we went, we stayed at the Four Seasons, and we called it, we ended up calling it the Barney's Weekend because Barney's was still open. And we went to the Four Seasons. We stayed there for two nights for our sort of wedding nights and ended up just wandering over to Barney's, which was three blocks away, and just shopping. 
for that whole weekend. Now, he didn't actually buy that much, but I certainly did. There was a lot of, you know, like a lot of Japanese fashion that went down there. A little bit of Dolce & Gabbana when it wasn't quite so ornate. Like they actually used to do some good, you know, simple tops and things like wow, that. Wow, I don't see you as a Dolce girl. Nothing flashy, just like the wealthy. I mean, they, they used cut to do a beautifully. few. Yeah, they used to do a few sort of simple things that were just beautifully cut and really high quality because, yeah, the Italians. Oh. Yeah. Um, so I did end up with a few nice, you know, Jill Sander was still going. Oh, beautiful. She used to do some great suits. So I got a few suits. I mean, Calvin Klein even had still like fashion at that time, not just underwear. And so you seriously filled your boots. I mean, compared to most people, I would say no. If you look at Jenna Lyons closet, which is like a, a whole apartment. No. Right. I still have like a realistic kind of closet. It's the same thing with my brain. If I have too many things, I just get confused. And had you planned what you were going to wear to get married in, or was that part of the bonnet, Barney's trolley dash? No, so <laughs> we got married before the trolley dash, and actually we decided to get married on Thursday. We had to go get a license. We bought the license, or we went to, I think you'd go to City Hall to get the license. So we got our license, and you have to wait 48 hours before you're allowed to get married. So we probably got our license on Tuesday, and they said, well, what about Friday? So we just took Friday off. But we didn't have, I didn't have a ring. We didn't have rings. I didn't have a dress. I had no shoes. So we got a car to pick us up from Thierry's house in Brooklyn, because he had a house in Brooklyn at that time. And we went to Soho. I went to Morgan Le Fay, which had like really kind of cool, a little bit rock starry dresses, but you could always find something beautiful there. I bought a dress. We got rings. I remember them saying, we can have these done by like May. And we were like, how about two o'clock? You <laughs> <laughs> have these resized. Tell me about the dress. It was actually, it was a beautiful, just sort of a brown, like brown multi-layered thing. Um, so like not white. Not white. It was just the one that I looked good in. I didn't yeah. really care about white or, but I tried it on. And you know, for me, when you're shopping for clothing, which I don't get to do very often, but the one rule I've learned is if it's not an instant yes, it's a no. Yeah. Yeah. If you have to like shift around I and you're not going a like... really good tip. You will never wear it. If yeah. you have to like, oh, if I lose five pounds, I'm going to look good in this. Or if I, I wonder if I have the right things for it. Or maybe if I put this with... It's like, no. If you don't put it on and go, oh, then you should not buy it. Yeah. You gotta yep. keep looking. Top tip. Top, <laughs> Top tip. tip. <laughs> then you went on to create this amazing brand for super women, Fit Flop. And I, I remember at the time having a pair of those ba Maasai barefoot technology yeah. trainers, which were effective. They were pig ugly. They ripped my feet to pieces, but they did the job. And then you came along and worked in a different approach to this biomechanically engineered shoe how difficult was it to combine form uh, and design with function quite difficult the main reason being that no one had ever thought of that before so when I first set out to find a shoe that would do all the right things for your body when you walked in it um, I thought I needed a shoe designer to help me. And so I would I would try to find shoe designers by networking. This was sort of 
early internet days, right? It wasn't like you could type in shoe designer or ask ChatGPT. I was going to say ask <laughs> ChatGPT. <laughs> what kind of professional do I need if I want to biomechanically engineer a shoe? You, there was no such thing. So I just thought shoe designers, and you kind of know, well, I'll find the shoe design college or fashion college or whatever, and they'll send me to someone. And um, I remember making so many different people sign a non-disclosure agreement because I had this idea about a shoe that would work with your body and, you know, do all, you know, align it. And Multitask. do all these Multitasking shoe. Um, because there were no good-looking shoes, actually, that were comfortable at all. I mean, I, too, would go to Barney's, same, probably same weekend, or maybe <laughs> another weekend. It's like my favorite weekend destination when I lived in New York. And you go to the Barney's shoe floor, and you'd be wearing, you know, I'd buy a pair of Andam Meister beautiful flats that I thought, well, these are really cool, and they look like they're going to be really comfortable, and literally be trying to walk to the office or walk my child to school, and they would be coming off my feet. Right? They're so mm. fashionable shoes are not always fit with any kind of care or any concern for the body. Yeah. Um, and how the shoe affects the body. And to this day, I'm still really fascinated by the fact that if you make a shower gel, right, a body wash, a sudsy thing that is going to go down the drain and not really affect you whatsoever, you have to test that body wash for 60 days on 60 people to make sure it has no negative effect on those people. Yeah. You can, however, design a five-inch heel, that will pinch the nerves of someone's foot and damage them forever and put it on the shelf, no problem. It's extraordinary, isn't it, when you think about it? And, you know, killer heels. Or can I, be killer. <laughs> yeah, the, the, who was it? Someone I, I read, I think, is it Dolly Parton? Because she has always worn heels, literally even slippers with heels. Wow. She now cannot. She, when she walks her... in bare feet, she's walking around on her tiptoes. Like Barbie. Like Barbie. Yes. I might have that completely <laughs> wrong. I'm sorry, Dolly, if I have got that wrong. We love Dolly. We love Dolly. Even if she has to walk on her tiptoes, <laughs> she's a legend. Legend. She's such a legend. Um, now, so, so, so you created Fitflop. Yeah, Fit so Flop. I found, finally, I found, I, I would interview these shoe designers and then I would tell them what I wanted to create. And they would say, well, they'd look at me like I was a lunatic and then say, I don't know how to do that. I just draw shoes. <laughs> and that was one after another after so another. So did you go another. to an engineer or a you know how did you how did you get the technology in there because it's real technology isn't it? Yeah, in the end through another conversation I was having with someone else they I said I'm trying to do this by the way and it was an academic from Swansea and he said, "Oh, you need to come and meet with our biomechanics department." And that's where I realized, "Oh, actually he said biomechanics." <laughs> and if you were if you were Canadian you'd say biomechanics. Um so I I then took a train to Swansea and met with their biomechanics department. I have another hilarious story, but too long for now, about that meeting. Um, and, and then I finally found someone, someone who was working for me, emailed me and said, hey, did you realize that London South Bank University has a biomechanics department? So I made an, or made an appointment to go meet them and walked in, described to these two guys who were their you know, professors of biomechanics or biomechanics um what i wanted to do and dr dave cook looked at me and he goes oh i know how you can do that you do x y and z and from the initial prototype yes which looked like a lump of coal i was going to say <laughs> was that really hideous oh my god it was so hideous i remember them bringing it out and then 
measuring it and having people walk in it and they had all the electrodes hooked up to the model's bodies. Fascinating. Oh, it was incredible. It's how apparently they do animation by doing this, yeah. right? So they could measure what does it do to the gate, what, how much pressure is on the heel strike. They had um, uh, heat maps on the bottom of the feet so you could see that the pressure was being diffused perfectly across the whole foot, which is so good for your whole body because it stimulates your organ systems, all of this stuff. But I remember looking at it going, I don't care if that thing like lifts my butt to between my shoulder blades. I am not leaving the house in those. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you take it from the lump of coal to what we now know as fit flop? So really, this was quite a lucky, um, a lucky situation. I had remembered that one of the companies that manufactured Sexy Mother Pucker for Soap and Glory happened to tell me during a hello this is who we are meeting when I had first moved to um to London and was looking at different labs to work on soap and glory with that the, in part of their presentation about the history of their lab and their company they had a sister business that sourced shoes for M&S believe it or not yeah so they were a footwear sourcing business and they had these cosmetic manufacturers out in Trowbridge um and I just remember thinking wow the shoe is actually, once we had the results back from what Dr. Dave, I call him Dr. Dave, had engineered, it was like, I'm not taking this to one of the big guys because who knows, but it would be a David and Goliath situation. I didn't want to end yeah. up there. And then I had remembered, wait, the people who make sexy mother pucker, they know some, they do footwear. So I called them and then had a meeting with their sourcing person. They set me up with a shoe designer who then went to work with Dr. Dave to make sure that the shoe and the biomechanics were something wearable. So the first one was like really quite crude. It was just this sandal. It was kind of like sporty, looked like a flip-flop, chunky sole, but we sold millions of them. Yep, no, I, I remember it well. And yeah. there's nothing better than multitasking. No. <laughs> as we walk, <laughs> we lift better. our bottoms. Yes. I love it. Um, you're a woman of words, I always think. Thank uh, you. You're probably one of the most talented copywriters I've ever come across. I'd like to know how you would want someone else to describe your style DNA oh. <laughs> in three words. Okay. Missing in action. No, stop it. <laughs> stop it. I'm not no, taking that. <laughs> that's my answer. I don't have, I don't, I think I've had to work really hard because my body is not like a typical, you know, feminine woman's body with like tiny shoulders and, you know, a chest. And long legs and like perfect knees. Um, as my friend Ali said about my Ali, my friend Ali is a creative director and she used to work in the music industry. And she would tell me about certain people who, when she'd have to style them for record covers, it was like impossible because there was nothing easy, right? And I once did, Carla Welch is a, quite a famous stylist yeah. now in Hollywood. Before she was that famous, when she just first got to together with Matthew, who was her uh, photographer, now husband, um, they recruited me to do this ad for charity for a rug company. And I warned her. <laughs> I said, don't try and get me in a dress. <laughs> like, Whatever you do, do not bring dresses. And she's like, oh, I'll just bring a few, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I'm telling you. It is hard to dress me. It's like... What did you end up in? Oh, my God. A care of a stylist. That would be quite interesting well, to know. Well, she didn't listen, right? And also, <laughs> I had just had a baby. So there was like the... Then I was like a little... You get a little thicker, right? And I'd had sort of boobs for the first time in my life because you get them and then they go back away. 
So they disappear again. So I was not even having like the super slim upper body that I would normally have, which would be easy because then you do like the long, you could then do a long dress or a long skirt and some kind of slim top, but I didn't have that. I didn't even have my like muscular arms at the time. And she put me, I kept saying, no, not a dress, not a dress, not a dress. She's like, come on, try it on, try it on, try it on. And I remember this is like one of those traumatic fashion experiences. I try it on and she looks at me and she goes, I see what you're saying. <laughs> it was like, I told you. But, you know, then you just feel like, oh, I can never wear a dress again. <laughs> but I don't have the knees for it, right? Um, so I have to kind of, I have to stick with that style, which means it, it, it does become kind of a uniform. Um, but defaulting to Japanese stuff just really works for me. I mean, I know that you obviously get photographed a lot. Mm. And I know also that you're very aware of who you are and what you are. And um, I, I know that you also sat for the legendary Irving Penn. And did you know in advance how he was planning to style you for that shoot? Yeah, no. So it was quite interesting when Vogue was, you know, always shooting with Mr. Penn back in that day. Phyllis Posnick, who was the sittings editor, um, was one of my facial clients. So she would come in and I would be giving her a facial and she'd say, oh, Mr. Penn wants to do a shoot about blah, 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 blah. Do you have anything? Like she was sort of looking for what can we, you know, physically kind of style onto what looks cool? What can we stick on a model's face that is going to look really cool? What are the latest trends in beauty? And so I'd be giving her a facial going, well, we've got this wax thing or we've got this blah, blah, blah mask or whatever. And so she ended up recruiting me to come in and be like the prop stylist for him for a couple of shoots. So we did one shoot where we had um, like one of those thermal masks that you put over a piece of gauze. It was actually really cool. And, and then it hardens and then you kind of lift it off. So yes. And then we had one shoot where um, we were using, I had all this really colorful wax for body hair removal yeah. that you, that wasn't the model's funnest. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really enjoy I that bet. one. It was a little like screaming coming from the studio, but <coughs> it was, you know, all these beautiful colored wax that we were sort of spreading onto their skin. Um, so there was that. And then he asked Phyllis, he didn't ask me, which was quite funny because, I mean, but he asked Phyllis if I would be the model for the next one. And then she said he wanted to do something like seaweed <laughs> or something. I was like, well, okay. And so we actually found a whole bunch of really weird looking seaweed. And he, he decided to turn me into a sea creature and put like crazy seaweed all over my head. And I had like one eye and It's an seaweed. extraordinary image. It's kind of... And- did you freaky? Just, did you just l- let him get on with it because he was this legend? Well, I couldn't see at that point. You're like laying against the board, right? So yeah. I couldn't move, and he. I, I remember like slapping pieces of seaweed across my face and just being like, "Okay, but <laughs> don't but smudge the makeup." <laughs> other than Irving Penn, are you very much in control of what you wear for for a photo shoot? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, because you know what? There's just no point. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the same with you. It's like, what? Who's going to know how your body will look better than you? Nobody. Right. At this stage. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of know. I mean, talking at this stage. This stage. Is, you know, when you think of hair and beauty as we evolve. Yes. What are your tips to staying youthful? As we age, mm-hmm. 
as we progress in years, yes. however you want to put it, whatever. Yeah. Get smarter. Um, yeah, get yeah. smarter. <laughs> get more in, into our own skin. Yeah. 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 Into our power. But what, uh, as such an aesthetic person, mm. what would you say are good tips? Oh, I think, A, get the best haircut you can. Yeah. And your, your natural hair color, or as close to whatever that was when you were younger, is what you should have. Like fighting against it means that you have to then put a lot of makeup on that matches whatever that hair color is. And so as close to your natural hair color as possible, if you are dyeing your hair, is game changing. That's a very interesting point. Yeah. And I think people either go to a stylist who tries to do something a little bit off or they don't know if they're warm or cool or whatever it is. And as soon as you change your hair too much from what goes with your natural skin tone, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. And if you can find someone who can cut your hair and give your hair a style that really is your signature. I mean, I have Garen. I, have, I, I only get over to New York like once every six months or so, but I will literally not book my flight until I know he's available <laughs> because <laughs> cause he cuts my hair and I feel like a totally different person. I haven't been there since October, so it's grown out quite a lot. But when he cut it, people will literally stop me on the street yeah. and go, wow, look, your hair cut. Yeah. And you just feel like the character that you want to inhabit when you have that yeah. perfect haircut. Taking great care of your skin, obviously, right? Mm. Sunscreen. Um, and, and I think just like knowing what your style is. Yeah. Like there is a uniform. By the time you hit like 40, 50, you know what you can pull out of your closet and it's going to look great. It doesn't really change that much. I always think it's what makes you feel Good. confident yeah yeah whatever whatever that is yes. and and for each of us it's going to be something different but if we're feeling good yeah you just exude a confidence, confidence. Yeah. yeah you want to feel like yourself yeah yeah do you think you've got a style icon oh my god well okay i'm gonna say it's Probably, oh my God, that's a really hard one because I love Ray Kawakubo, but sometimes she's so out there that you can't do that, right? Um, but but she's an icon. She's an icon, and she also has such a vision. But I, yes, I mean, she's an icon. I wouldn't be able to emulate that, but she is an absolute icon. Yeah, good, good answer, and fearless. Um, would you think you had a worst fashion moment? It was a worst haircut moment. A worst haircut moment. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. It was... <laughs> okay, I'll just say three words. Perm. <laughs> Asymmetrical. <laughs> 80s? 80s. <laughs> like, you can just imagine it from there. It was too painful to relive. <laughs> how, how long was this said haircut? Oh, my God. It was so bad. I don't think I even wanted to go to school. This was some guy. His name was Jay. I still remember the name. I can, I can picture him in my head, and I think he thought he would do something, like, really cool on me. And I was kind of game. You know, I've always been a little bit like, yeah, let's try it. But I remember getting home and just thinking, I can't go to school like this. It was probably in grade 9, maybe grade 10. No, grade 9. Eight. and I mean it was devastating and traumatic and I don't even know how I got out of that haircut you know when someone cuts your hair so badly that you almost need to you know but I couldn't do a buzz cut 
on grade eight. That would have been just too extreme. Let's leave that trauma behind. Yeah, maybe we should cut this part. Yes. (laughs) We talk about travel. You're constantly hopping on and off planes. Are you a good hacker? Mm, Relatively, yes, now, yes. And you know what I've realized? You don't have what you need when you get there and you're going somewhere like New York or London or other, you can buy it. (laughs) (laughs) I used to really panic and I was like, wait a second, just like order it. It's so true. Yes. yes. Favorite luggage? Oh, well, I actually love the away luggage because the wheels, there are four wheels, right? And you can just pile your stuff on top of it. And it's just how you can walk through the airport with those Luggages. It's, it's so true because actually I've got the two-wheel wheelie. Yeah, not I am good. I tripping myself up on it. And also you have to kind of hold your arm yes. like this. You, hit, you end good. up with a sore shoulder. Yeah. Which good one. Ruins your posture. <laughs> Back to posture. Back to posture. Mm. Um, wardrobe secrets. Do you have a guilty secret brand? Well, what, do, what does guilty even mean? Well... I was is say, it that it's something you don't want to admit that you buy, or is it that you spent too much on it? Oh, now you're turning the tables on me. What is guilty? Um, guilty is. Ooh. Let's say, <laughs> let's say the most expensive item. Well, actually, I think the most expensive clothing item I've ever bought was for my husband, when he turned. I don't know, maybe forty or 50 or something like that and there was this Hermes parka parka yeah with layers and things that oh, kind of snapped beautiful. out and it weighs about 40 kilos you so have a pinch it from him I, it is like a weighted vest <laughs> it is so heavy that when he hands it to people at restaurants to hang they go like this <laughs> like that but it's amazing um, shearling lined like just so beautiful um, but I, I don't know why I find it easier to spend money on him. <laughs> but I will buy, like, I've bought the odd piece from the row, right? I've bought the odd Yoji Yamamoto or Comme de Garçon pieces that are kind of those incredible layered coats that do many things that are really pieces of art. They really are pieces of art. Like have clothing, you, good clothing is art. Have you ever bought a super expensive designer bag? Mm, not that expensive how expensive is expensive that's it's all relative pounds right? per wear don't think about it you never do you never no, because it, it. No. no because if i'm gonna wear it i'm gonna wear it and then i don't even think about it yeah. it's just like it's again that instant yes it's like am i gonna wear this everywhere yes i'm just gonna get it and it doesn't really matter yeah. i'm not a one of those people who goes out and shops all the time and you no, just think oh my god see that no i don't have time What's your approach to sustainable fashion then? Well, I think if you love it and you're going to wear it for a really, really long time, it's sustainable. Very good one. Mm. Very good one. Do you buy vintage ever? Not really. Any reason? Well, I don't, again, don't have time to go sorting yeah. through it. Um, many things. And of course, probably vintage now is maybe a little bit different than vintage when I was 20. Because vintage when I was 20 was cut for the 1950s yep. kind of body type, which is not mine. So I just wouldn't find anything. Yeah. And I really like my clothes to be kind of fresh. And yeah. that can be difficult also. So it's a it's a time issue. I, I get that. Mm. I get that. Let's spin on to some quick fire questions. What fashion advice would you give your twenty year old self? That's if it's not an instant yes, it's a no. Good one. Which fashion trend would you most like to see make a comeback? That's a pass. <laughs> 
And I don't understand the next one. What does Room 101 mean? Do you know what? If you're not British, you don't seem to understand what Room 101 means. No, I've 101 is like... where you consign things really to the bin. Oh, like it never comes back. Like you just never, ever, ever want to see it again. I don't know if I ever saw it in the first place. <laughs> the perm? The perm, no. I think maybe like flares. Like really, really big flares. Oh, who can wear those? Is that what they're called? I mean, they were stupid. They were called loons in the 70s, but that was maybe slightly before your time. What was your last impulse buy? I think it was this jacket. Listen. It was quite good. I did well on that day. You did well on that day. <laughs> there might have been five or six impulse buys. Your views on tattoos? Oh, you know, I used to really think, oh, my God, why are people doing that to themselves? How will they ever get them off? <laughs> right. And then they became so ubiquitous that now when you see people who are like fully covered in tattoos, it's normal. Right. It's changed so much. It used to really be a thing. It was like you were a yes or no tattoo person. Now, I really don't care if other people have them. I used to think that if you're if your child got one. It said something about them, right? Like, or you're like going to you. be judged. Yes. But I have so many friends, older than me, younger than me, who got tattoos of random things like Woodstock, <laughs> Tinkerbell. I mean, who's to judge? Beauty treatment you couldn't give up. Oh, hair coloring. And a good haircut. Minimalism or maximalism? Minimalism. Couture or charity shop? Neither. Crocs, cute or puke? Puke. <laughs> Sorry, Sneak. Crocs. They do well, though. They sell a lot. They sell a they lot. They sell a lot. Sneakers or stilettos? Sneakers. Skinnies or boyfriends? Boyfriends. Or white you know this. <laughs> sports Lux or Rock Chick? Totally Sports Lux. Trend or style? Style. Colour or monochrome? Monochrome. Experimental or uniform? Uniform. Cashmere or cotton? Both. Hoarder or editor? Editor. Shapewear or sexy lingerie? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> you know, have you seen negative underwear? Not that I'm doing a plug for them or anything like that, but have you seen that brand? Mm. It's really good. So Jenna also, right, um, told me about them because I said, you know, you should do underwear. She said that you can never do underwear better than negative underwear. And it is like the somewhere in between, I guess, sexy lingerie it's not shapewear as such, but it is like great, very wearable underwear. I highly recommend. To check out. <laughs> Tights or stockings? I think they're both a plot against women. <laughs> yeah. Bikini or one piece? One piece. Beanie or berry? Beanie. And finally. Yes. Marcia, at the end of the day, do you or don't you wear in bed? I love a really super light cotton men's PJ. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, your witty, informed answers. I mean, as you know, we we can chat until we're at the top of the mountain. Um, but thank you for your time today on this miserable, miserable London day. You'll be so ready to get on that plane. It back has not been miserable spending the beginning of it with you. Oh, bless you, bless you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.